So, um, as is my habit, uh, we are working our way through the first letter of John. And uh, our theme scripture is just those two short verses at the beginning of chapter 2 of First John. That uh, really, it was a chantal, chantal really, really lovely. Um, that uh, starts off with my dear children. And uh, if you like titles, today I want to talk about Jesus, my advocate. So, um, Lisa, before you tune out, we won't have any maths lesson today. Um, my previous uh, classes or lessons about uh, chapter one all uh, had a little math lesson in there. And uh, I really appreciate Lisa saying uh, it's, it's, it's a bit like elevator music. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great description of of maths and and I appreciate that not all not all of us uh, love maths not all of us understand it um, and uh, she says like oh it's like elevator music I think meaning like you know I tune out and it's kind of just that noise in the background um, I have areas like that as well that I don't understand it makes no sense to me and I'm not that interested either and I tune out and it becomes elevator music to me so, but good news, Lisa, no maths today, but, uh, but we will start with a bit of language. And this uh, chapter two starts off with, uh, in the NIV, uh, it says, my dear children. Um, in most other translations and older translations, it says, my little children. And uh, it's interesting that in, in some languages, uh, like in my mother tongue, my native language, Afrikaans, and also my third language, Dutch, um, there, in those languages, a single word has a diminutive form. So you would have, for example, in Dutch, uh, you have boom is a tree, and a little tree is a boom pier. But in English, generally, we don't have a diminutive form. So you don't have tree and then like small tree. We would say, oh, a little tree or a small tree. But what's so interesting about these languages that has a diminutive form, um, uh, uh, German has it as well, Italian has it, is that it's, it's, it's actually quite hard to translate because the diminutive form doesn't just mean small, it is actually a, a term of endearment and, and, and a term of affection. And John starts off here when he says, and I love the way it's translated in the, in the most recent NIV, where it says, my dear children. Uh, because what he's saying is, he's writing to his fellow Christians as a, as a senior, older apostle, probably later on in his life. And he expresses his affection to them. Uh, it is not in the sense of, you know, I am some kind of, in some way, superior to you. But it's, a, it's an expression of affections, like in my little children, my dear children, um, seeing them as, as something precious, something special. And uh, it's a bit like, um, I don't know if you can see this, this is my, my wedding ring. And in there, right in the corner, is a tiny little, you probably can't even see it. There's a, there's a tiny little diamond there in the corner. It's small, it's tiny but it's actually quite precious. And uh, often the most precious things uh, are small. They're not huge like mountains, but small little diamonds. 
And that's kind of the, the, the sense of what John is trying to convey here. Um, and it connects back to the, to the, uh, to the previous chapter when he, when he expresses the sense of my dear children, the sense of affection, the sense of closeness to the, the fellowship that he is writing to. So he starts off, my dear children, and then he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So when he says, I write this to you, this uh, immediately calls for a review of um, a review of chapter one. And this is actually one of my pet peeves. And uh, if you've been around listen, listening to me for a while, uh, maybe you would have noticed that I tend to repeat myself in some, some areas. And one of these is that we need to read the Bible in context. Uh, I, I have a pet peeve with sloganism, picking out slogans from the Bible and one or two words or just short sentences and, and taking them out of context. And whenever the Bible says, therefore, it's a reminder for us to read what came before because that gives the context. And in the same way, um, the chapter breaks were not in the original scriptures. The original scripture, so if we read First John, it is one long letter. When we write letters, or I don't know if anybody still writes letters, but maybe you write emails. When we write emails, or even when we have conversations with each other, we don't stop halfway through the conversation and say, oh, uh, now it's chapter two. And we kind of disconnect the previous part of the conversation. We, it's one flowing conversation. And when we write an email, it's one flowing conversation. And the chapters tend to, sometimes we tend to think in chapters. Oh, it's a new chapter, so it's a new idea. Now, sometimes it is, but often it is not. And we have these these clues, these key words like therefore to remind us that don't disconnect these two chapters. Don't connect what I'm writing here. Uh, don't disconnect what I'm writing here. And John does exactly the same thing here. He says, I write these things. Which things? Oh, the things that he wrote in chapter one. So who can remember some of the maths or spiritual lessons from chapter one? And um, I'll be very impressed if anybody does, because it was a month ago and two months ago and three months ago that we covered those. Uh, feel free to cheat. Feel free to uh, open your Bible and have a quick look at First John chapter 1, if you feel like that will be helpful to remind yourself. Um, but uh, I'm going to open up the chat here and so I can see. So feel free to, if you want to, uh, pop something into the chat or if you want to unmute yourself, you can unmute yourself and... Uh, I remember one lesson being about walking. Walking, that's right. Yeah. yeah, there was a bit about walking in the light and how we yeah. walk and how important is the way we walk. Right. Well done, mate. Uh, you said you were going to give us a demonstration of a funny walk, though. We haven't had that yet. Oh, the funny walk, that'll have to wait until we're all together as a, as a church again. So. <laughs> <laughs> you are free. You're welcome to remind me about that again when we meet meet as a church. <laughs> there was one about trigonometry. So as we move closer to God, we move closer to each other. That's right. There was a trigonometry lesson where as we move closer to God, we also move closer to each other. It was also about all about fellowship. Yeah. Any more for any more? Statements of truth. I've forgotten the actual term. An axiom, yes. A axioms, yeah. 
Yeah, so we had an axiom that in God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. That's a, that was an axiom that we learned about. And then the previous time, uh, at the end of chapter one, we learned about pi and the size of a circle and how unfathomable pi is and the size of a circle and how that's the perfection of God and sin is missing that mark. Uh, so who's that, Bronwyn? Want to add something, say something? No, okay. Um, so, uh, so I said today it'll be quantum mechanics. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Liesl remembered the would I lie to you game. Yeah, that was uh, would I lie to you? Would I lie to you about sin? We talked about confession and that, uh, that we bring sin into the light by confessing it and, and therefore we take the, the power of Satan away, the hold that it has on our hearts. Um, we talked about the maths lesson of a circle and that is like the target that we're aiming for uh, like a, someone shooting an arrow, aiming for the center of the target, but we can not actually really ever hit it because it's, we cannot even calculate it. So that was, those were some lessons from chapter one, and those were important because that's what John writes here when he says, I write these things to you. It's like, why did he tell us about all these things, about, about bringing things into the light and walking in the light and having fellowship with one another, about confessing sin and then saying things like, well, if you say you don't sin, then you lie. Um, and, and if you say, say that, then you make God a liar. Uh, why is he writing all those, these things to us? And he says, well, I write all of this to you so that you will not sin. That's his purpose. Like in, oh, now, if we remind ourselves in chapter one, if he says so that you will not sin, it's like, you know, but that's impossible. You just told us in chapter one that, if we say we don't sin, we lie. Now you tell us, you write to us so that we won't sin. You tell us to do something that is impossible. That doesn't make sense. But if we remind ourselves that um, sin is, not, is falling short or missing that mark of the target that we're aiming for, what is he saying? So John is saying, I write this to you so that you won't fall short, so that you, so, so that you won't miss the mark. He's saying, yeah, we... We know it's almost impossible to always hit the mark. Um, even the top darts players in the world cannot hit the bull's eye, the center, 10 times in a row or 50 times or 100 times in a row. Um, they sometimes miss the mark, but they still strive to hit the mark. And that's what John is saying here. He's saying he writes this to us so that we will keep on aiming to, for the bull's eye, aiming for the center of the target. And that is his objective in writing to, to them and writing to us so that we should not sin, so that we should not miss the mark. And then he says, but uh, he follows that on, but, uh, but if you do miss the mark and you know you were aiming for the mark, then you don't have to fall into the deepest of despair and, and, and concern and worry and feel guilty um, because you know you were trying your best. And that is really what God calls us to and what John calls us to. He says, yeah, even if you know you're going to fall short sometimes, still keep on trying your best. Still uh, aim to lead a holy life, a, a, a righteous life. And then he even qualifies. He says, I write this to you so that you won't sin, but we know what reality is. So he says, he carries on, he says, but if anybody does sin, 
we have an advocate. Now, this is interesting. An advocate. An advocate is someone who appears in court uh, and defends someone who's been accused of some crime. Now, uh, I'm going to ask a question here, which um, please feel free to share freely, but if you want it edited out, just let us know and we can let Malcolm know to edit that bit out. Um, but if anybody wants to share with, have you ever been in trouble with the law or had to appear in court? Maybe you, there's a story that you feel like you're willing to share um, and, and tell us. Uh, and we can even pause the recording if, if necessary to say, you know what, I, I, I'd like to share this, but do you mind pausing the recording? We'll pause the recording if you want to share it with us. But has anybody been in court as an advocate uh, there and the magistrate or a, or a judge um, or someone had to appear in court? Or maybe you've just been in trouble with the law. I don't mind sharing. As a student, I um, uh, had a very old car that um, I had to t drive to university every day. And um, there wasn't a lot of parking on campus. And so I very often parked in places I shouldn't park. And then you used to get a fine, which is about three pounds worth in pounds, about 60 rand in those days. And over the course of my first year of uni, I must have had about 10 of these, which was quite a lot of money in those days. And before I became a Christian, it's one of those things I had to sort out. So I had to go to Weinberg Magistrates Court and plead my case to have the amount reduced. Um, it took about, I don't know, two days. I remember going back again the next day again, because obviously the queues were, and I managed to get it cut into a third and then had to pay over, which was an enormous amount of money for me in those days to get my record clean before I was baptized. <laughs> well, did, did you have a, a lawyer or an advocate or did, did you plead your case yourself? I did it myself. I did a lot of research and then did it myself. <laughs> That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Bronwyn. Anybody else? I see Barry is unmuted. Is that because you want to share something? Yes, Stefan. The, um, uh, I think I was about, oh, I think I was about 20. And um, it was soon after credit cards came out. And um, I'd run up quite a bill in credit cards, which I couldn't pay. Um, so I owed about uh, £6,000 on a Barclays Gold credit card. Um, and I wasn't earning anywhere enough to pay even the interest on that. Um, and the, uh, but they made a, a mistake at the time they were, they would charge you um, an annual fee of about 150 pounds for that. And um, they charged me twice. And so I refused to pay the bill. Um, and in the end they took me to court, but they took me to the Queen's bench, the high court in the Strand, straight to a senior court. Um, and uh, so I thought, okay, well, I've got my case. I don't owe the amount of money they're asking for. Um, it was 140 pounds less. Um, the, uh, and so I went to the court, but I didn't actually know the court system. And Barclay Carr put their, their barrister put their, their case forwards. And then the judge asked me what I had to say. And I started to give my defense. He said, well, you haven't filed this defense. Well, no, I'm giving it now. No, you have to file it in writing X number of days after you get the uh, initial court papers. So as, as such, I can't actually accept your defence and uh, enter the case against me. Uh, and and uh, this sounds really interesting. 
<laughs> and then? Oh, I, I, because the uh, barrister had actually given false information to the court, because I claimed I owed a certain amount and I didn't, I wandered around to uh, Bow Street Police Station and spent about an hour convincing detectives there to, uh, to, to prosecute her for um, perjury in court. <laughs> and they called the um, Criminal Prosecution Service to see if they'd take the case, because I wouldn't let it go. And uh, the original sister of widow. Um, and uh, they came back and said, well, we could, because they couldn't prove that the, uh, the barrister actually deliberately lied, then they couldn't take the case. Um, so I refused to give it up. And in the end, the, um, uh, the uh, detective phoned the, um, the barrister in question, pointing out that she'd actually given false information in court. And I intended to take this to the Crown Prosecution Service and they were preparing a file, uh, what the, the detective was, and uh, suggested he gave her seven days to sort it out with me. Um, uh, and so we resolved it. Uh, there was a, some twists in it where in the end, but in the end, they, uh, they made so many mistakes that they actually had to forgive the whole debt. Wow, that's a, an amazing story. It's, um, thank you, Barry, for sharing that. And, and I have a similar story where it sounds like Bronwyn and Barry and, and, and my story. You know, it's, it's uh, when, when we go to court, a lot of it's about technicalities, even though, even though we know we're actually guilty. Um, I had a similar situation. I, I, I once went, um, went to see a client uh, in South Africa. This was before I, I was a Christian. Let me just uh, qualify my story like that. <laughs> um, and I didn't have the same kind of conscience that I have now. But um, I went to see this client and I was late for a, for, a, for a meeting. So I was driving very fast and I had a colleague with myself in the car. And I was probably going about 100 miles an hour um, and uh, uh, was pulled over by, by, a traffic, by the traffic police and said, yeah, you were going too fast. And I, know, I knew I was going too fast, but I asked him, how fast was I going? And I know I was going 100 miles an hour, but he said something like, uh, like uh, 95 or 90 or something like that. And I said, no, that's definitely not the speed I drove. And I, and I said, is your, is your uh, detection equipment calibrated? And he says, yeah, he's sure, he's sure it's calibrated. I said, well, okay, I've got a, a witness with me in the car. I'm going to turn around and drive the same speed again. And then he's gonna, my witness will tell you what speed he saw on my um, speed dial. And you tell me what speed you get on your, uh, on your camera. And we did the same thing and, and um, I drove the same speed and, and, he's, uh, and there was a difference in the readings. And he was like, well, you're still driving too fast regardless if the meter, if the meter reading differs by 5%, you're still way over the speed limit. And uh, he wrote me a ticket and, and I decided I'm not going to pay that ticket. I'll take it to court. And eventually I got my summons to court. I went to court. I wrote a letter to the court before that to the prosecutor. And the day I showed up in court, um, the magistrate actually asked and he looked at the case and then he asked the prosecutor. Um, so uh, what is the case against this person? And the pro prosecutor read through it and, and realized that, and she said, oh, Magistrate, I'm so sorry, we should throw this case out because uh, we cannot actually uh, prove beyond doubt that he drove the speed that we said because the, there is a difference in calibration. And this case that he actually drove too fast doesn't matter because it's not accurate enough. Um, and I walked away not paying a penny and, and 
very chuffed with myself that I kind of cheated the system, knowing that I that I went way over the over the speed limit. Um, there was another case where I went to court once, uh, where I actually was a witness to an accident. And I was coming from one side, it was here in London, uh, I was driving from one side and another car was coming from the other side. And as I was driving, there was a, a drunk person on my side of the road, on the pavement, kind of walking, you know, as someone walks when they're drunk, swaying left and right and stepping into the road, stepping back onto the pavement. And as I was driving, I saw this person and I was like, oh, this looks like trouble. I slowed down. Next moment, this person stepped into the road again, started crossing the road to the other side, stepped onto the pavement on the other side and back into the road again. And, and the moment this person stepped back into the road, a car came from the other side, hit the person, um, knocked her over and, um, and, and into the road. And, and I saw this whole accident happen, slow down, stopped, uh, and uh, called the ambulance and everything. And, and eventually it turned out, well, I think the next, that same evening or the next day, this uh, um, victim of the accident passed away in hospital and died. Uh, so I was summoned to the Crown Court, um, to the coroner's court, to, as, a, as a witness of the accident. And I was sitting through, through the whole proceedings and then it got to the point where I was called to, to give my witness and I, and I explained exactly what I saw, told my story. And then the, the judge asked me a question that completely caught me unaware and I wasn't expecting and I suddenly dawned on me, wow. And the question was, if you were coming from the other side, like this person who hit the lady, do you think you would have been able to stop in time? And I found that a really hard question because it dawned on me and I realized that if I said yes, it would implicate the driver of the other car to the point of, well, he should have been able to stop Therefore, he is guilty of manslaughter. And it would have been very severe. And if I said no, maybe that would let him go free. And suddenly I became like an advocate for the other driver. And my word would make a difference to whether he's found guilty or not guilty. Now, not knowing how the law works, I didn't realize it's actually not that intense because the judge and the court cannot find him guilty on that basis. But for me, that's how it felt. And, and, and I, I started and I stumbled and I'm like, what do I say? Because what I say could make such a difference to this person's life. And eventually I decided that I would like to be his advocate, but I, I cannot say something like that. It's, uh, I know that from my side, I saw her clearly, even though it was at night, there was enough light and I saw her and I slowed down. And I eventually just said, look, I cannot say I cannot answer that question because I came from the other side. It was different conditions, different lighting. I cannot speak for that person. I kind of dodged the, the, the question in that way. But it made me realize what a difference an advocate makes when we need help. Um, 
you know, it's a bit like in the movies when, uh, when someone gets arrested, one of the first thing they told is they get to read their rights and one of their rights is to speak to a lawyer. When we need someone to speak on our behalf, because like, like Barry said, he didn't, he didn't know the court system. He didn't know that you had to file things in advance and how it works and what's the best way to deal with these things. Um, and what the scripture here says, it says, you know, when we sin, we try our best. But when we sin, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. This is incredibly comforting thought. And this word advocate, um, the Greek is parakleton. Uh, it, it's quite a unique word. It's a, another bit of language lesson here. It's one of those words which is so hard to translate because in the original language, it means many things. And it so de depends on the context and the way you use it. Um, and, and even through the Bible, it's translated with different words and in different ways. But it, it is translated here as an advocate. It is also sometimes translated as an intercessor, someone who acts on our behalf. It is also a, a helper. Uh, sometimes it's translated as a comforter. It's the same word used when Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit to you, to the disciples, when he tells them in John. It's the same word. And he says, I will send a comforter to you. So this paracleton, this advocate, this helper, intercessor, advocate, comforter, is someone who we can rely on to manage our interests and who, who will plead our case, who will plead our cause. And John is saying here, that is the, the, the amazing peace and comfort we can find in the Christian life, that if we know we, we're doing our best and we're trying not to sin, but we sin anyway, we fall short, we miss the mark, we don't have to feel the burden of that guilt. We don't have to feel like um, we've fallen short again, we are inferior, we're not good enough. And we don't even have to appear before God and try and plead our case uh, and try and kind of explain that, yeah, but I was trying my best, but then I messed up and it didn't really work out. And I know I'm, I'm struggling with this and I, I'm not as strong as I want to be. And uh, I have this weakness. We don't even have to do that. He says we can find comfort in the fact that God, who is the judge, needs to judge us because justice needs to be done. Um, but we don't need to worry about that because we have this advocate. We have Jesus who intercedes, who speaks up for us, who, who intermediates for us, who, who knows the law. He knows how it works. He knows how to use the right words. He knows how to, to explain it. And he will stand in our place. He will, he will represent our best interests to God. And this is, a, this is actually, you know, theology can sometimes you know, get boring or, complicated, but I think this is su su such an important thing for us to understand. And, and sometimes I, I, I try and wrap my head around this and I, I still don't get it, but that's the nature of the grace of God. Mostly, I suspect, or most of us, I think, want justice to be done when some wrong has been committed. And when it is something extreme, everybody wants justice to be done. You know, if there was a, a violent murderer without conscience, a serial killer, someone who goes around just killing people, 
and they eventually catch him. Very few people would say, yeah, let him go, set him free, show him some mercy and grace. Most people will say, yeah, we want to see justice done. And often when families uh, lose someone and the criminal is caught and appears in court, you often hear the family say something like, we just want to see justice done. And when it's some extreme case, that's kind of easy and it's, yeah, it makes sense to us. But the funny thing is, when it comes to ourselves, we don't always want justice done because we're like in, well, I know in my case, like when I went to court for that speeding ticket, I didn't want justice to be done. I wanted to get free. I didn't want to pay the ticket and I didn't want to be convicted. We want justice done for our others, but not always for ourselves. In this court of judgment, where everybody one day will face judgment in front of God, in front of, of the judge, God has to live up to that standard of justice being done. And this is where it gets complicated, but is it right then to set anybody free and to say, it's okay, you can go? If justice has to be done, then the advocate is there not necessarily to plead for us that we are not guilty, but to see that there's no injustice done to those who, who, who broke the law. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus being our advocate, is that he's not there to, to make a plea that we are somehow innocent or make a plea that, um, that we didn't sin or didn't fall short, but he's there as an advocate in a, in a very unique way. And that unique way is explained in the, in the, in the rest of the scripture where it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the amazing thing about Jesus as our advocate is I don't think any court in the world, uh, I may be wrong, I'm not a legal expert, but it kind of just doesn't make sense that the advocate who appears on behalf of someone in court will then also end up paying the, paying the, the penalty or getting the sentence that the one being accused has. But what happens here is that Jesus, because he is the righteous one and because of his sacrifice on the cross, appears in front of the judge as our advocate. And then we can kind of paint this picture. He appears before God and says, God, yes, I know Stephen is guilty. And I'm not here to plead this case that he's not guilty. But the case that I want to plead is that he's guilty. He's been sentenced. And the penalty for his crime has been paid already. So even if the judge says, yes, you're guilty, you're being sentenced to two years in prison, then our advocate Jesus says, yes, but those two years in prison penalty has already been paid. That is kind of like, an, it blows my mind. And then the judge, of course, needs to be righteous, that the judge cannot 
send you to prison twice for the same crime. So if someone has already paid the penalty, then the judge says, has to say, well, then you, need, you can go free because the penalty has been paid already. We're about to have a communion. And as we have com communion, I want us to, to reflect on this, on this amazing thing that this Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is not only our advocate, putting in a, a good word for us with God, but he's also the one who paid the penalty that we deserve for our sins so that we can walk away free. And it's important that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is here called Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What does this mean? It's not just that he is righteous in the sense of not having sin. Um, and that is true. He is the one that is without sin. But being righteous also means he has a, the right relationship with the Father. He's in the position of a relationship with God that, so that he has that relationship that he can argue our case, that he can speak to him, has access to him, and he can make the case that he's, he's trustworthy. He's in a trustworthy relationship with the Father so that he can be acknowledged as having paid the penalty for our sin. So we're about to have communion as we uh, share the bread and the wine. Let's reflect on that, that Jesus uh, did the time as the, you know, as the lingo goes, goes, you know, he did the time in prison for our crime, if we want to see it like that. And therefore, even though we are guilty, we could be convicted. We cannot be sent to prison again for the same crime because someone already spent that time in prison. In fact, in uh, the book of Peter, it says, in those three days uh, that Jesus was in the grave after his crucifixion, it says he went to preach to the spirits in prison. So in a way, Jesus actually did spend time in prison for our sins. Um, as we have this bread, uh, let's think about his broken body uh, on the cross, but also that Jesus went to prison on our behalf. As we have the, the fruit of the vine, let's reflect on, on his blood that was spilled to actually pay the price what's called in some trans translations, the propitiation uh, in the NIV, the atoning sacrifice. Uh, he fulfilled the sentence for the guilty. And as we have this uh, fruit of the vine, let's reflect on that. Let's reflect on, on the sacrifice and the payment for our sins that Jesus made on the cross. Let's pray for the, for the bread. Of the Lord.